0: Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather get an ad to sign up for something, or would you rather get a recommendation from a friend to sign up for something? The answer is pretty obvious. A recommendation from a friend is always the ideal option no matter what you stack it up against. And this is why I love Sparkloop. It's the referral tool for newsletters that makes it incredibly easy to enable subscribers to share with their friends and get rewarded for it. I use it myself and I can't recommend it enough. Check him out at sparkloop.app/eim. You can find the link in the show notes and build an army of marketers for your newsletter. On the show today is Heaton Shaw. Where do I start with Heaton? Um, most notably he's the founder of the software companies. FYI, Crazy Egg, and Kissmetrics. He's also been involved in starting a number of other companies. He writes a newsletter called Product Habits. He does a podcast called The Startup Chat. He angel invests, and I'm going to have to cut it off here, but Heaton has a grand career in my eyes. I wanted to bring him on because Heaton has been in the world of tech and startups for a long time. With time and experience comes wisdom. And I'm always impressed by the way that Heaton sees the world and how he thinks about marketing. He also has quite a unique ability to be very objective and honest about himself. Uh, we get into this with his companies, but he's not afraid to talk about where things have fallen short. And given his experience with Crazy Egg and Kissmetrics, Heaton knows what works and doesn't work. And he's seen it all and has been on the forefront of marketing for a long time. So you'll hear about what go to market model Heaton would start with if he was founding a new startup today, why marketing is everyone's job, why all of his landing pages are just a headline, subheadline, call to action, and some sort of illustration and why there's no such thing as having done zero marketing. All right, Heaton. to start out, um, I was wondering, did you ever imagine that you'd be doing startups and marketing for a living?
1: I try not to imagine the future.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Even when you were young?
1: Yeah, not really, no, yeah. I, I, uh, I was just told growing up that I should work for myself. So I sort of took that to heart um, and I was told that since I was like really young, like five years old. So I don't really. Um, yeah, I, that's all I got. Yeah. What, what was <laughs> that's it? What, I know. what
0: was then the, the okay. foray into this whole startup world and um, technology? Uh, and eventually, you know, this led you to your ventures now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've had a computer since I was eight. Um, I'm pretty good. Using them and figuring things out uh uh regardless of kind of what the problem is, I mean if I had to go learn programming, I'd probably go learn it pretty fast if i if I had to um thankfully, I don't have to at the moment uh so yeah i i, I actually didn't know much about sort of building products on the internet until about two thousand three or four um when I got out of college and started a marketing consulting company with my brother in law
0: mm-hmm. yeah, interesting, I know you've mentioned too before how you love. Simplistic arbitrage opportunities, as you put them. What role did those types of sites, businesses, experiments play in learning marketing and building businesses?
1: Yeah, before we started building software products for basically 2003 to 2005, we did a lot of experimentation. And one of the things that taught me about marketing and that, you know, the, the statement that I think. All marketing is really arbitrage. If you can boil it down to that, that means you have a spreadsheet and you can look at it like that. We were running uh, um, a bunch of different properties, but also doing direct ads to affiliate links um, from Yahoo Ads. And one of the main reasons that we decided to continue doing that is because once I sort of started it, um, it became it became pretty formulaic. And this was back in you know early 2000. so a lot of things that are exist today either didn't exist then or did exist then and don't exist anymore, uh, including Yahoo's uh, Overture ad system that kind of was really powerful at the time in terms of getting cheap traffic and converting it Mm. uh, to something people wanted, at least seemingly. And so that arbitrage opportunity of driving traffic to an affiliate site and getting that sort of uh, payout on it uh, and being able to measure everything from visits to your own site to clicks and all that, or even add straight to the affiliate links cause you used to be able to do that and still make money. Um, that was really, I would say my first online marketing sort of uh, holistic experience from the idea of like having to create the copy, tune the copy, run the campaign all the way to sort of watching what happened, you know, in terms of the clicks and revenue and f- payouts and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating to me how it seems like every sort of OG quote unquote marketer, you know, internet marketer out there started out within sort of like the affiliate space and or Google ads, Yahoo ads, some sort of search driven ad platform. And basically, like I said, doing arbitrage of figuring out, Hey, there's a bunch of people searching for this thing and there's a bunch of products that would match that thing. Let me figure out how to build a site, run some ads, um, make some sort of connection, build a community around this and essentially arbitrage an opportunity like that, that teaches you some of the fundamentals of marketing.
1: And I think like people that are exposed to that pretty early in marketing probably tend to stick with it just because of the feedback loops and the speed. And like you kind of, I, I don't know, I think you get marketing when you do that because you, you've de-scoped a lot of the things down to just marketing versus worrying about the product or the service or other things. So you're focused on the metrics hmm. and the data and what works best, what doesn't, stuff like that. Well, I think when you're marketing other things that are products that are not just like traffic arbitrage, you end up having all the complexities. And yet the basics of marketing boil down to arbitrage, right? Buy low, sell something at a higher price and get whatever's in the middle minus whatever it costs you to make the thing. And it costs you nothing to make affiliate links. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so mm. that's pretty cool.
0: Especially back then it was just, you know, throw up a site and then you just add the links, you sign up for the program. And then it was like magic.
1: And we didn't even, it wasn't even that complicated, right? We would we would get. We just need to be accepted into the affiliate program, right? And you could just run ads straight to the sites back then. Yeah, and it, and it worked out just fine.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, I want to. I want to later sort of maybe take a step back and sort of rewind through the, through your past and through all the different ventures and some lessons along the way. But right now, um, it's a sort of a thought experiment, which. Think is uh, we can thank Twitter for this is if you're starting over, I thought there was might be an interesting thread to pull here. If you're starting over what go to market sort of model, um, an acquisition model, would you start with a new startup?
1: Yeah, the, uh, I know you asked us on Twitter and I started answering some of the questions partly because if I could answer them on the tweet, I might as well. Um, and so my response to this question, which obviously needs a lot of unpacking, um, was that I would start sales-led. And um, I think the way I would start ends up being timely based on where the world is and what I think the opportunities are. So today I find the biggest opportunities in focusing in on what people absolutely need and being able to position a product in that way that they need it. And sales is the fastest way to do that. I would argue that it's faster than marketing, mainly because a lot of the tactics of marketing tend to be quantitative heavy, meaning you're learning through data um, instead of learning through customer conversations or potential customer conversations. So to me, like, you know, I've always believed in this, and this is not how I used to say it, but this is kind of what the common terminology is, but I've always really believed in go to market as a team. And that means sales plus marketing. So when I say sales led, to me, it's more like where, where would I start whether no matter who I was and what I already knew, I would start sales-led. The reason is that muscle of finding customers or potential customers, reaching out to them, uh, trying to get them to talk to you. Commonly, that's like sales development, business development, SDR, so sales development reps. But really, if you start digging into the tactics, it's actually outreach, which typically was a marketing function. Hmm. It's just more recently, it's merged into sales. And that's why the whole murky of sales and marketing is kind of like muddy water, right? Um, uh, There are some things that are clearly marketing, some things are clearly sales, but there's so much in the middle that like both areas are starting to get a little bit crowded out and there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of historical context as to why that overlap exists. A lot of it has to do with sales having budget, marketing not having budget, but that's a totally different topic. Um, So I would start sales-led and I would inform everything based on being sales-led. If you kind of want a, an example of a company that I think has done that and has captured marketing and sales and product and all these things, it's actually a HubSpot. So mm. HubSpot looks like a marketing focused company, but ultimately my argument about HubSpot would be they're actually sales driven and sales focused because early on they built out sales <laughs> and they use sales to discover what to build. And that's kind of the story i'm probably butchering it it might be a little off but that's the inspiration for kind of where i what i would recommend folks think about seriously when you're thinking about how to start today and the main reason is a lot of marketing falls in the sort of it can easily land in the people want this but they don't need it Mm. and sales is absolutely about needs because you're trying to sell them something at a certain price point now if you have a product where you don't need to do sales and it's something where you are selling something online, like, like as simple as like selling a bunch of stuff on Gumroad, for example, I would make the case that you're still sales led because you're selling something online. And I would still focus on the sale versus fo- focusing on everything before it. And so my 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 sort of um, if I were to unpack it, the easy way to say it is sales led but I think the best way to say it would be conversion led and ideally a conversion Mm -hmm. with a dollar value and sales. The reason I call it sales is most of the things I work on are B2B, but if I were doing something where I could put up a price point on a site that could be called conversion led, you know, on the high level. And then sales is one way. Another way would be conversion optimization or whatever equivalent you have uh, that you want to do. So if you're doing a gum road, there's a whole bunch of ways that you can test that Uh, in selling it, whether it's through Twitter or Facebook or ads or organic, but at the end of the day, you're still trying to sell something. And so I would put that in the sales driven sort of bucket as well, or sales led.
0: What, what are the sort of risks or uh, that you're trying to avoid, or maybe obstacles you're trying to jump over with that approach over maybe a more marketing driven approach that would, you know, start with a landing page and then maybe start building out content and or, um, reaching out to partners or, uh, you know, avoiding some of the hand to hand tactical stuff. Like what are the risks that, that someone would, uh, take on by having that approach versus a more sales led, uh, hand to hand approach?
1: Yeah, I, I think the fastest way that I've found to validate who the customer is, is actually sales. And, mm-hmm. and that's why I think sales lead is so much more important if you want to build a customer centric company today, because um, it's really easy to get lots of people to click on things on your marketing or some people to read it. What's really difficult is try to suss out who the hell cares. And sales helped you figure that out really quickly because people either respond to you or they don't. They follow up or they don't. And there's like really clear signals. For example, if a customer is following up before you get a chance to follow up with them, you might be onto something, you know? Like like things yeah. like that, those signals are much harder to get in marketing without going a lot deeper and doing more work. So in a way, if you really wanna build a successful company and it's, and it's sort of something where you could do sales or you might do sales, I would recommend just doing sales first. And then everything else sort of comes from that because the learnings you get in that area about who the customer is, what they care about is a lot more like front and center compared to other approaches that I've seen.
0: Hmm. Now, is this something that's new? You, you mentioned, you know, that it, it depends on the circumstance and sort of the industry that you're in, the timing of, uh, of the market, but is this something that you feel like, I mean, it's sort of like a default, like, you know, regardless, like this is probably a good place to start, or do you feel like it's special to like the world that we live in today? Cause I'm thinking back to like, uh, you know, the lean startup, even like four steps, to the epiphany where it's sort of uh, you know, startup ancient wisdom at this point of, you know, the whole customer development and, uh, getting down and sort of getting out of the, what's it, get it out, get out of the building, right. Type of discovery work. Yeah. Um, or is it more tailored to what's happening today? Just because there's a lot of software out there where there's a lot of people selling things.
1: I mean, the, the, uh, in general, like I would recommend going back to basics, right. And the, Every which way I see it, being sales led ends up being the most effective thing right now. Um, Mm. If you ask me this six months from now, I still think I'd say the same thing. I'm pretty sure I'm going to say the same thing for a long time to come at this point. And part of the reason is, yeah, where the world is for sure, the signal is sales at the end of the day, if if people will buy what you have or not. Um, I've seen a lot of folks start in other ways and then either get bottlenecked by not having developed sales skills or, um, have to add sales later. And which means usually means you're doing it late, Hmm. like you're doing it later than you should. So, um, when I think about things like marketing and I think about content and I think about all the strategies that have become really popular and I think about ROI and I think about time spent early on, if you're not getting as close to the sale as possible, if not getting the sale. I think your, your your learnings are not as clear and crisp as to what people will buy and what's going to lead to sort of success in terms of value proposition, product market fit, all those kinds of things. Um, so, I think sales lead is timeless. If I had if I would go back and say, hey, you know, kind of like Heaton, old Heaton, like what should you be spending more time on? It would be sales. Hmm. And I mean, it, it, it's just in a way to me, it's like. I I would call it sales, but at the end of the day, I think the first part of go-to-market is knowing who the customer is and what they want from you. And more importantly, what you can build that they need. Because what they want from you and what they need and what you can build that they need might not all be as clear until you start talking to them and develop your own thesis of what the market needs. And a lot of times, even in markets where you think you're competing head-on with another alternative, once you start talking to the customers or you do competitive research and stuff like that, you start learning so much about the nuances of what people like, what they don't like, what the other company might be missing out on. So if you were to tell me, hey, like, seriously, how would you start? I can give you the three steps. I think for me, the the first step is actually go identify companies that are in your space, whether it's because they're talking to the same customer you are, um, but you're not competing with them necessarily, but they do target the same persona or whatever. Um, uh, it's like it's like step one for me is actually that, and step two is sales, and step three is sort of delivering on on what I learned from what we learned from like sales conversations, sales discovery, etc. Hmm. But that step one is actually marketing, and so because the thing is, if you don't do some amount of research about the the people you're trying to reach or think you're trying to reach and the things that they're exposed to, the products they're exposed to, whether they're alternative products, you're directly or, you know, complimentary or even completely different, but they're selling the same person. If you don't do that, you won't even know how to talk to these people when you go talk to them. So I think the hidden truth today or or the secret is understanding your customer by not even talking to them by actually going out and seeing what they're exposed to and what they have to say about those things. So I actually do spend time reading the Gartner reports or the relevant reports. I go do file type colon PDF and do a bunch of Google searches on the topic area I'm going for, or let's say, I'm trying to go after specifically Facebook ad managers or marketing managers focused on Facebook. You can do a tremendous amount of research about that person and what they care about by just Googling a bunch of stuff And then you can find some products that they use. Like imagine if you're building something, you think you're building something to help these people, how much you can learn without even talking to them just by looking at how they speak about all the tools they use or all the things they have to do. There's also like so many different, like uh, avenues where you can learn. Like even a podcast like this, you wanna learn about marketers and what they're hearing from other marketers or other folks who are thinking about marketing, you come here, right? And there's a bunch of these different things. So that first step I think is what people, don't even write about in books like this is not what we talk about in customer development it's not what we talk about in sales discovery mm. but at the end of the day like and in fact like founders are actually uh, when they start and even companies like as a whole they're almost uh, deterred from thinking about competition and i and, and I would say that like that's not the reality we live in like if you're gonna build a new like create a new uh consumer product good brand you'd go look it All the brands that are out there that are building for the audience that you're going after and try to understand the products, the audience, what they think about them. So competition isn't about like, like looking at competition and being competitor focused is not about the competitor. It's about the customer. And the fastest way to learn about the customer is understand what they think about the problems they're trying to solve today and the solutions that they currently have. So we we go all over the place on this. This works B2B, this works B2C, this works like in marketplaces, it almost works universally. And it's the one thing I wish I could teach people because it's the easiest thing to do, easiest thing to learn. Uh, Probably hardest thing to be disciplined about, to be frank, uh, because those sort of things you learn invade like your own mental space about what you want to do so you have to be kind of open to that invasion and kind of let it happen because otherwise you know you might build the wrong thing or you might build the right thing and not know why it's the right thing either way this is helpful so it's taking a step back there's a three-step process and i think the first one is actually more closer to competitor research or alternatives research or whatever you want to call it so you can understand the customer without even talking to them. Second step would be more sales discovery-like conversations, which sometimes are customer development. I mean, if you really look at and and read the customer development, the original book, Four Steps to the Epiphany, the majority of it actually is about sales. Mm-hmm. It's not just about customer development, right? Especially considering the person who wrote it, Steve Blank, was actually a marketer first. And he had a marketing problem, actually, or so he thought. And then he realized it's a much bigger problem. And then customer development came around. So sometimes when you look at the history of this, you're like, wait, we're actually back to marketing. Cause marketing is probably older than sales if you really kinda wanna dig in, you know? And, and that's what's fascinating about marketing as a whole. Like, you know, these days, like most people think of me as like, you know, a product person or, or whatever, just cause like I've been talking a lot about that stuff. Uh, but at the end of the day, like um, I think we're all marketers.
0: We're all marketers. Interesting. There, there's one more thread I wanted to pull on because I know that some or I've had some people make this argument. So I wanted to get your take on it, which is sort of the balance between building in public, building a lot of hype, um, putting yourself out there, maybe earlier than you're comfortable with versus, uh, building in private or kind of going into stealth mode, right. Or, um, doing a little bit more of a, uh, undercover work without, putting yourself out there so much. Where do you stand in there? Or is there a time or place that's appropriate for either one?
1: Yeah. Um, I asked a question on Twitter about what does building in public mean to you? And there really wasn't a clear answer. And usually when I ask questions, it's because I don't think there's a clear answer. And sometimes I find the clear answer. I'm like, okay, cool, right? There's a common answer. Yeah, there's a bunch of common stuff people say, but I think this whole building in public thing, um, folks have made it a little bit too complicated. Um, and and there, there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack if you want to dig into it. There are some great examples of timely building in public frameworks or ways to think about it. One thing I'll say about that is I don't have a preference. I definitely focus on the customer and then figure out if building in public is beneficial to the customer or beneficial to our company in order to get to the customer. Mm. One of those two. If you're building in product public and it's for reasons that aren't those two, then you're probably not doing it for reasons that are gonna move your business forward. You might be doing it for other reasons, right? Personal motivation, you know, all that's up. Good, great, no judgment. Like, that's cool. That's not why I would do it.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I wanna talk about uh, Crazy Egg, Kissmetrics, and FYI, and how they all have incredibly unique and simple landing pages, which I think will kind of segue us into a larger discussion about copywriting and value props and positioning, which I'd love to get into. Um, but they quite literally just have a headline, a brief sentence or two, or maybe a quote from a customer, a call to action, and then some sort of uh, image or illustration. And you've, it seems that you've taken that strategy for the landing page uh, in that very simple funnel through most of your startups, why why is that your preference for the landing pages and why go that route?
1: Yeah, I'll just, yeah, I'll, I'll go down it. I think that's really, really good uh, topic uh, that I don't get asked about enough it, besides like, oh, why don't you have more info or what you're missing this <laughs> or that? Um, so here's the deal. There, there, there's a bunch of layers here. Let me start with Uh, Let me start with Crazy Egg. Uh, The original landing page we had for Crazy Egg was was back in 05, and it was like an early access landing page when we didn't know to call it early access, so we called it beta. (laughs) Um, And uh, that was a simple page. Showed you kind of a heat map and another view that we had called an overlay in the product, and that was it. You put in your email. We had about 23,000 people back in 05, 06, kind of sign up for it. Uh, And then we launched on dig.com, and it took down our servers, which is the old kind of dig.com story of what would happen. It was, it was a thing that came after tech crunch. Um, and now we have product hunt, but I don't, I've never heard of product hunt taking anyone's servers down legitimately. So I think it's funny how traffic is not as pointed hmm. these days as it used to be. You have to get to multiple places to get the same amount of traffic. Yeah. Uh, while dig was like definitely a massive, um, driver of traffic on day one for us. Um, so it really started there and realizing the impact and power of a simple message and, uh, a simple call to action. Um, at KISSmetrics, even the page we have right now, um, I haven't been involved in the company for quite a few years, like quite quite, quite a few years. Uh, it might be over five now. Yeah. Um, but the page I loved was the one that said, Google Analytics tells you what's happening. KISSmetrics tells you who's doing it. And that was the one that had the highest conversion rate by far and we were able to increase the conversion rate on that page like 350 plus percent or 450 percent with like maybe like three, four months of tests, maybe a little bit less. Um, I just see the, I mean, we used to own Hello Bar. Hello Bar still probably has a really simple page where you put a URL in first. We hadn't seen many products doing that when we did it back then after we bought it and sort of tweaked it and then we sold it. Um, look like at some point you realize that if you need lots of words on the page, it's because you are either trying to appease an internal set of people like in your company, or you've discovered that this is the best way to get people to take the next step in your funnel, hmm. which is like a long sales letter or any of that, which none of that am I opposed to. But I believe with software products, the software is the enabler to enable somebody to do something. And the quicker you get them to the next step, the better because that's what they're there for. And if if for the people who don't want to take that next step, frankly speaking, they can go away and come back later when they feel like it. Hmm. And that's the key because the highest conversions come when that next step is sitting there. It's super obvious. And people who want to opt into it, opt into it. And people who don't, they don't. And that explicit divide is what most people internally can't get aligned on. They wanna appease all the different audiences that are coming to the page when all you really need to appease is that one that matters. And yeah, if it's three, that's cool. There's still a holistic commonality between them of them all taking the next step. Even if it's like, which one of these are you? <laughs> Who are right. you? Cause so we could speak to you in the way that you wanna be spoken to, right? And that's what it really boils down to. So I know that was a little bit of like an offshoot, but like these simple pages are on purpose because it forces us to distill the message down to one or two sentences, max. I, I'm, I, I I mean, I look at content all over the place and like, if like the content is more than two lines, like a headline or a sub I usually even just want it to be one line. Something's wrong, hmm. like wrong. Like we're not doing the best job we can to get the message to people when they visit our site and let them know what we're all about. That's the way we think about it. In a way it's philosophical. In some ways you could call it dogmatic, but it's not because at the end of the day, when what we do is over time, you see these pages evolve fully oriented around what we learn is required for the most amount of people who show up to take the next step. Hmm. So yeah, the 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 hardest thing to do is figure out what doesn't need to be on the page versus what does. So I'll give a really classic example. So a lot of our pages like you can get to pricing, but it's not like an obvious like link. Uh, a lot of them, not all the pages. When you do user testing on these pages, the number one request people have is, what's the price? And this is why you see pricing show up on all these pages. We choose to ignore that because every time we do put the price, we're appeasing an audience and introducing a new, a, an alternative to taking the next step to anyone who's willing to take the next step without going to the pricing page. Mm. And so what ends up happening in that flow is that the conversion rate drops, whether it's like 10 or 20% or 50, it drops somewhere in that range. And so we have to be really deliberate about, are we getting better people because we added the pricing link, like better meaning more qualified leads or whatever, or are we just getting less volume and hurting basically our growth? And those are the kind of things where like, there's a lot of false positives in, in, when you try to test a page and try to understand what people need on the page and what they don't need because oftentimes they're looking for something and there's a quicker way to address it for example if you said free forever or if you said we'll always have a free plan like or or, or you just added the word free somewhere in your cta or in your headline or subheadline or whatever you could probably solve the problem of pricing hmm. much much easier than like taking people off the off the sort of happy path of conversion
0: yeah. It's interesting to, to play devil's advocate a little bit. There are some people that are, that would argue, well, if you give more people information upfront, or if you're more transparent about uh, the offering or the product, or you kind of show what's on the page, maybe even criticize alternatives or competitors or walk someone through very step-by-step that it would maybe uh, kind of prime someone to convert into uh, a trial or a customer later on. Um, Do you think that that's uh, maybe something that's a little bit biased just because that's the way we wanna do things or that's the learning from it? Or do you think that there's some merit in that argument to be made?
1: I was really resistant to adding more stuff on one of the Kissmetrics homepages, the one I mentioned with that title. And the team disagreed with me. And so they ran a test with a limitation because I imposed the limitation. Okay, the limitation is you get a link in the bottom left corner get a link. You can have it say whatever you want. You can test it, you get a link. And the reason that constraint existed is because anyone who's looking for an alternative to the main thing you want them to do or that they should do, they'll find that link.
2: Hmm.
1: And it worked out really well. We added the link and we tested it and there's like a 14% increase in signups because of that link. So it's not that I'm opposed to more info. It's actually that I think most people don't have the skills to, to do the A-B testing that way, and skills meaning like just discipline to have constraints, or they don't have the skills to write an amazing sales letter, which hmm. is essentially what a long page is. Even if it's a long page that looks like a SaaS long page, it's still a sales letter. Yeah. You're trying to motivate people to go down the page, right? So that skill set is still like scarce. People don't know how to write great long form content. And it takes a lot of work and practice. And you know I've been writing that kind of content for a long time outside of marketing pages like in emails and things like that. And like, it's hard work to get good at it. Like a few years ago, my co-founder and I decided and committed to getting good. We we literally hired a, a kind of someone we paid four figures a month to edit all of our work with us because he knew exactly how to write this content. And we learned from him. Hmm. My content has gotten like 100x better, at least the way I think about it in my head has gotten 100x better than not working with him. And we still work with him. That's the kind of investment we made. And like, I'm supposed to know these things. Like, I've been doing this stuff a long time. And yeah, I know the principles and stuff, but like, actually doing it in practice and having an editor to edit that kind of work is like just challenging. And I didn't do it till the, till like maybe the last three or four years, did I actually pursue that in a really serious way? Cause I wanted to get great at it without like, I wanted to get great at it so I could do it fast. That was my key. And so when you, when, when anyone starts getting into longer form content, I really start digging in to say, do you actually know how to do that? And if not, how are we going to learn how to do that? How are you going to learn how to do that and make it great and make it so that we're focused on helping people through the journey instead of just assuming we know all the different things that they might want to know. Here's the funny thing too. You only need one out in those, in those flows to make all the people that want the out and are willing to take it happy. You don't need 10 different explanations of things or all these other things. You just need one way for people to learn more in a very, spe- with very specific copy. And you've already built in sort of what you're looking for. So in my ideal world would actually be one of those. And, and we haven't had the opportunity to build that out yet. Cause there's a bunch of work happening at those companies. You mentioned that I'm still kind of working on is have this, have the short form page but have the exact right message for anyone that needs a sales letter. Hmm. And when they click, get them the sales letter. They're the ones that need convincing. They're the ones that need sort of more depth. And, and yes, I would definitely want those folks of the ones that are willing to kind of take the next step, to take the next step. So it's almost like there's like a short version and there's a long version. And if we're really good at copywriting, both can be very effective, but which one would I wanna to show to most people? It's probably the short one because if you don't need more info, and you're willing to convert, we should let you.
0: Hmm, right. Don't do over the And if you need
1: point. more info, if, we need, if you need more info, you should have a way to get it, but we don't need to show that same information to everyone who's willing to convert before they get it. Now, when you look at conversion flows, like for consumer apps that have a lot more higher volume, Airbnb, Facebook itself, Twitter, Instagram, I mean, just go down the list. All the popular sites, WhatsApp, all of them, have pages that resemble ours hmm. from a just simple, above the fold, nothing more for you type of situation, right? One last thing I'll say about this is all that being said, the number one thing that matters is probably the theme of today is is who's coming to those pages and what is their context and what do they know? That will completely demolish any of these arguments I have about these principles because if someone says, this type of person's coming here's what we know about them here's the objections they have before they're willing to sign up and we need to address them fine Sh- show me the info show me the problems show me what you got and like let's build a page that's long and really great that addresses those things because we know enough about the customer to know we need to address those things if we don't know that why are we spending so much effort writing all this copy
0: yeah yeah i want to go down sort of further tease that thread of copywriting positioning uh value props um, I also need sort of a jumping off point here, and I think it's important because uh, most people would use those terms, I think, pretty interchangeably. Um, and so I'd love to get your, your view on, are they interchangeable? What are the differences? Just so that we're talking about apples and apples.
1: The only word that you can use for all of those that's kind of interchangeable and in is commonality is communication. Hmm. They're all forms of communication in ways that we're trying to describe how we communicate. Like copywriting, it's like writing copy. It's like writing words. We, we should be doing that all the time, right? right? So copywriting doesn't mean much to me, except for the fact that it's writing words. Cool. We're writing copy, but copy could be an email, right? Copywriting is more referred to copy with the purpose of marketing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which is usually the purpose of getting a conversion on something. Right? that's usually it unless it's branding but that's still a conversion because you're trying to sit in someone's mind so you're trying to convert into their minds <laughs> from not being on their in their minds but that's a different story um positioning is 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 more so like how do you fit and how do you describe how you fit into the market uh into the customer's world things like that that's positioning to me i'm sure folks that are experts in positioning can say it way better than i do i try to keep it simple to me it's just fit positioning is all fit. How do we position this? So how do we fit? How do we fit in this market? How do we fit with this person? How do we fit with this team? How do we sit with them? That's positioning to me. And value prop is literally the words, the actual words that someone needs to hear to understand what value you can drive for them. Hmm. That's value prop to me. Uh, And positioning helps you, the positioning work helps you figure out the value prop. Um, is it, kind of the way I would differentiate kind of those three things. But at the end of the day, all of these are about communication. It's about communicating something to somebody so that you can convince, try to convince them to do something you want them to do.
0: Yeah. Uh, so for each one of the, say, for example, the landing pages, right? FYI, Kissmetrics, Crazy Egg, um, even Product Habits has a pretty simple landing page um, that's mostly sort of the focus is above the fold. Uh, most of them have a very strong, what I would classify as like a value prop of um, here's the benefit or here's the outcome that you can expect. Uh, here's essentially what you would get with what we're offering. How do you design a value prop um, and uh, and positioning yourself in a way that makes sense with the customer's world or that um, is compelling enough compared to the alternatives out there?
1: Yeah. Um, I get to see my kids do homework quite a bit and do work quite a bit these days. And the word that just comes to mind is homework. So if you've done your homework, then all those things become easier. And homework, you know, everyone's going to say the same answer to this, which is like, go understand the customer, go talk to the customer, go think about and use their words and all those good things. Here's the thing though. Nobody ever told us that the statement for Kissmetrics in the way that we came up with it. They didn't say, oh, Google Analytics tells me what's happening. Kissmetrics tells me who's doing it. Nobody said that. But what we discovered is everyone has Google Analytics on their minds when they think about analytics. Everybody. Like everybody. (laughs) So if we don't address the elephant in the room, we don't get the conversion because they don't know how to put us. Basically, they don't know how to fit us in their worldview. Hmm. So that's the positioning work, right? So when I think about it, I just think about homework. We did our homework. We understood the buyer journey. We understood what leads up to them even considering a new analytics tool. And because of all that understanding, we realized one simple thing, which is once people feel like they could get more out of analytics and they weren't getting it from Google, they look for alternatives, Hmm. which sounds obvious, but the homework got us to that. And so then all of our product and our marketing and we didn't go as far on the product as i wish we would have but in the marketing and the blog and all that we started blogging about google analytics more we started telling people how to do advanced stuff with it and we we would tell them where it would break and then we'd be sitting there as the solution right and it became great because if you wanted our solution you'd get it and if you wanted to learn how to do more with google analytics you'd get that and so either way there's almost a clear path but we only knew that because we did um, jobs to be done interviews, which, which are really switch method interviews that help you understand why people switch from one product to another. And so we were trying to understand why people switch to kiss metrics hmm. and based on what we learned and I keep going like that. Cause there's a timeline that you build when you do the sort of jobs to be done interviews and the, the, the results are in a timeline. You learn the events that cause people to basically want to switch. Um, and, and it's usually a distress moment, right? It's something where they're just like, Oh crap. Like, I need this and I don't have it. And you're trying to figure out what leads up to that moment because then you can introduce marketing, um, copy, ads, whatever you need uh, to basically uh, get people down the that path. So um, I think about that kind of stuff a lot. I'm like, have you done your homework? Because if you've done your homework, you can nail the value prop. If you haven't done your homework, you're not likely to. And it's not just about the words customers use. It's about actually their mindset and where they're at what their situation is so i think the the big thing that's missing is situational awareness about the customer hmm. this is, even goes back to my earlier point that's why we'll go do competitor research before we even do any sales convos or customer development because that helps us understand the situation customers are in today
0: hmm. how does that then say for example you you know you get the example of Kissmetrics and you understood that once uh, someone was found the limit of google Analytics. They were looking for something else. So they realized that they didn't have what they needed from Google Analytics. So they went and looked for alternatives. Uh, either Kessmetrics was already on their mind or they went and found it through a series of searches or recommendations, et cetera. Um, then how do you land on something compelling that sticks with someone that gets them to convert? Um, how do you actually you know, take the input of the homework and turn it into the output of uh, a really simple landing page with a value prop that, you know, in two to three sentences max gets them into the product.
1: Yeah, if you have traffic, so whether you have a blog or you have a homepage and it's getting traffic, you A-B test it one way or another. Like like a good example is you could do a pop-up on a blog um, that has that headline and try to just get people over to your homepage, even if it says something different. Hmm. And just just try to test them and see which ones get the most clicks because that's at least them taking that next step, right? So that, that's one way we, we, we would do kind of testing of that if we have traffic. If we don't have traffic, my favorite method is a combination of five second tests and user testing. So a five second test is a test where you show a page and our pages are short. So you kind of see the whole thing for five seconds, and then you ask people three questions. Like, what do they remember? What do they think this product's about? Some simple stuff. You can go to fivesecondtest.com and I think figure out how to do it. The the tool I use is Usability Hub. It doesn't matter. The user testing also has this built in. Um, But that five-second test has proven to be super valuable because the way we think about it is if any person can't understand this, we're not doing our job. Hmm. Now, there are nuances where if you're targeting like, Like my friend uh, is targeting health IT people. They have very specific words that he's learned they use. So he puts that on the site. So then you'd want a five second test with those people, but most companies early stage, especially don't have that. They don't have that problem of we're just targeting these people. You can say things in simple words and that's probably the best way to start anyway, even for sort of a complex sale or when there's like buzzwords involved. Um, and user testing, we, we do that a lot. So one thing we actually do is sometimes we'll create a long marketing page. The type that we would never publish and then we'd user test it and start asking people to explain what they think of each section and if there's anything missing on the page and sometimes when they're and then we we actually literally say hey scroll down the page and as you're reading tell us what you think and what we've found is if we have like let's say seven value props like let's say we have a big value prop at the top And then we have seven different sections with like an image, you know, your typical sassy stuff, an image and like headline and a couple words or a couple sentences, whatever. Um, We get to learn if one of those seven is more impactful than the main one. Mm. And then we pop this one of those all the way at the top, right? And then we even figure out, oh, that one doesn't matter. Cause like nobody out of the 10 people that went through this, nobody cared about that one. Nobody even said anything about it, right? Things like that. And then we just keep tweaking just off a marketing page. I could build a whole product just by tweaking these marketing pages or not build but validate a whole product just by tweaking these marketing pages you know continuously until the value prop is set Hmm. and once the value prop is set then you can go build so you know these kind of tactics are kind of how we think about it um and, and how we approach it because we're trying to learn super fast we're not trying to do these studies that take weeks yeah these things we can do in hours or days
0: right and then once you land on the value prop then uh, and f- sort of figure out what makes sense, what's positioned well in the customer's mind, then you then you roll with that, and then you have it for a long time until it stops working. Or do you continuously product iterate evolves. from there? Or
1: it, it, yeah, it, product evolves. Um, we're trying to we're trying to optimize for leads, or we're trying to optimize something. We're trying to improve something. We don't like to make changes unless we're trying to improve something. Mm. And and so sometimes you you set it, and you're like, okay, great. Like let's say on on, on one of our pages, the conversion rate's like twelve, thirteen uh, percent to the next step. And, you know, our target is usually 25, which is, I know, an insane target, but we try to target that high. But once we get past double digits, if there's other parts of the business that are more important to work on, we go work on those. And then we come back to this at some other point. I think one thing I've learned in in all these categories and stuff is like good enough is good enough. Hmm. And, And sometimes that's just good enough. And that has a lot to do with your stage, right? If we go optimize the top of funnel, but we have bottom of the funnel problems, we're doing the wrong thing. So we try to get good enough there and then move on and solve other problems in the business and then come back to it when it makes sense. I think it's a common thing to like think you can continuously optimize at like a smaller scale, but I don't think you can. You have to actually move on to other things and then come back to it. Yeah,
0: I'd love to deconstruct uh, some of the businesses and sort of rewind and, and go back in history a little bit. But starting with FYI, um, I was curious if you can give me sort of an uh, inside look behind the scenes into sort of what the quote unquote marketing strategy is, uh, for FYI or, or has been, uh, I noticed that there is a lot of, um, sort of engineering as marketing, almost if you wanted to call it with, uh, resources and templates and, um, sort of these curated, uh, lists or directories of, of other content. Um, there's also the freemium model as well. Uh, but other than that, I don't know a lot about the FYI marketing if it is beyond that.
1: Yeah. Um, I would say that in each of these businesses, we historically have found one thing that works super well and then just continue to do it. So with Kissmetrics, we found that blogging 1500 word plus uh, content back in 2009, 2010 and onwards was like something that marketers craved because the content was either light or super long. Mm -hmm. And this like sweet spot was in the middle. We also figured out we could scale with exclusively guest writers. We were, I think one of the first blogs to exclusively scale like that uh, we didn't have internal writers or anything it was an editor and then everything was guest writers and all that stuff with bylines and all that and we were able to get to like a million page views from of traffic uh from there or a million uniques or something like that um with crazy egg uh it was very novel at the time to see where people click on your website with a heat map because it's a heat map tool I'd say we pioneered the category at this point. I, I'm happy to say we're first <laughs> and we're and, and, and all that. But like there were about two, two or three other companies that are no longer kind of in the same state uh, in terms of focus as we are. Um, and that has been brand. We've never had to do much except brand. And and we'll probably do more brand in the next year or two uh, and, and kind of kick back the, the attention on that brand. But it, it's an old brand. It's 15 years old and needs a lot of work, uh, including the website and all that. I think everything's really bad there but my my wife runs it and there's bigger problems to solve there right now like tech tech debt and refactoring and Mm. keeping up with the joneses of all these other products that are out there and stuff um but uh so so that's been brand we've never actually had significant revenue from any other source except direct traffic believe it or not probably one of the only businesses online right now that's like fully direct at massive scale uh and um and uh, fyi we're, we're a little over two years in um, uh, we have been in a market where you have to wait until the customer is kind of there in their minds for the need and the positioning work and all that stuff, uh, is not, is great because it, it it's about finding the wedge and finding the thing that sits in people's minds. So right now at the, on the home page, it says, find your documents in three clicks or less. We actually started doing SEO work super early. Um, so a lot of the growth marketing type stuff or tooling or growth engineering or whatever you want to call it, engineering is marketing. I don't know the terminology or the names of this. I, 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 I don't even care. Uh, we've built a lot of stuff. Actually, it's been built with code. So Ruby on Rails, we, didn't, we haven't done a lot of stuff with no code there. Uh, we have a remote work statistics directory. We have um, a whole bunch of template directories. We have... Uh, other things I can't remember right now because it was a lot of stuff that we did over the last couple of years. And I wouldn't say that we've defined the marketing strategy there. And as we started kind of working on sales, we've discovered a lot of stuff that's just not been sort of updated, um, on the site. Uh, and so I would love to come back when we actually make all these updates, because there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes around mm. it. But the simple thing is, everything I've said today, if I, I, at the at FYI specifically, I, I guess the one thing I'll say is, everything I've said today goes back to that business and what I've learned in the last two years of running that business. One thing I learned is when you're building a bottom-up business, um, you have to wait till the market's ready for the thing and and that means that you have to get it distributed far and wide as soon as possible because the best way to explain what it is is by someone using it Mm. dropbox in the early days is a classic example of this and they they probably are the kind of gold medal star winner (laughs) times 1000 on this because their way of giving away storage that used to be physical storage but was in the cloud and the way they framed it with megabytes uh, now it doesn't matter but it did back then and giving those away was a currency that's like probably one of the most remarkable non-monetary currencies that ever existed in my opinion, mm-hmm. which is their whole idea of basically commoditizing the megabyte is what I would call it. Um, they had to do that though, because that was the only way people were going to understand what this weird cloud storage thing was. That's not a flash drive because mm-hmm. it was an alternative to a flash drive. I think they could have done a lot of marketing to make flash drives the enemy, but they didn't. Um, but that's because they were much more a bottom up scalable model. Um, there's a lot of, considerations with that. So I'll save them. But at the end of the day, like we are in a business where exposure is the key and getting more and more people exposed to the product. So we've learned a whole bunch of stuff that takes us away from that. Is kind of the most I'll say right now, but we were on a path to figure that stuff out. And what that really means is for everyone that signs up, we're able to get like their whole team at their company using the product that's what we, we should have been aiming for. That's what we would have been aiming for. Hmm. And that's not exactly marketing. Some would call it product-led growth or something like that. Uh, but value propositions, landing pages, copy, emails, messages, all that stuff, it's still a component of product-led growth if you want to call it that, which is still back to marketing uh, or product marketing. Um, so yeah, our strategy has been just get the word out and a lot of branding and a lot of things to help build backlinks organically and all that good stuff because we knew that longer term we have a, you know, the business that we were in with, with kind of what you see today on the website, it's kind of closer to a Zapier type model where we could get a ton of traffic and get that traffic to convert because it's a super wide audience. And in fact, some of the terms we're going after or we're going after were the ones that kind of, they already kind of have a pretty good foothold on, but so do a few other sites. Um, So that would have been probably a a key driver, which is SEO driven sort of uh, conversions and stuff like that to kind of get people on board. learned a ton about all of that stuff and probably would do things a lot differently uh, going back two years ago. Um, mm. That being said, uh, the strategy was, was really getting the word out and being able to kind of get in on conversations that were happening out there. And the, one of the ones we got in on pretty pretty quickly was remote work. And so that's why we don't talk about it as much anymore even though it's probably a good thing to talk about now because a lot of people are thinking about it a lot more than when we were blogging about it. But our content was pretty good and we had lots of good great spikes in search traffic Uh, for remote work terms, you know, earlier in 2020 when uh, kind of a lot of people were thinking about that all of a sudden.
0: Hmm. What about freemium? Uh, Because I know uh, sort of it's, it's a difficult balance to figure out what should be included for free to get the word out and sort of to have some sort of network effect and or just make it easier to get people into the product to actually understand it. But as well as building a business that is validated through revenue, um have you guys thought about freemium for the business and how it plays into the the sales model and the acquisition strategy?
1: I don't think you could build a bottom-up collaboration tool without freemium. Hmm. So we were freemium. We are freemium and that that's how we think about it. You know, um it's that simple. It's it's know what market you're in, know what the norms are in the market and if you're going to go against them, make sure you have a damn good reason and it works with the Way you need to position this in people's minds i think one mistake we made at kissmetrics was actually not making the product free period and we, we charged like in fact we messed up pricing early on and, tr- and the first price point was 150 bucks a month hmm. um based on some price tests we did and, and all that when we should have had free and 150 or free and 99 uh and we didn't and i think that was a big mistake um but at the end of the day I, it is tough stuff like i i don't really wish freemium businesses upon most people. So I would look at the market and see if free is a norm or free is a sort of opportunity for disruption or free is just an opportunity to increase the velocity of leads. Hmm. Cause there's about the three different reasons. If it's a norm, you kinda really wanna go with the norm. You know, if people are used to free product, um, there are exceptions of course. Um, and then, you know, if you're sort of really thinking about it more seriously and it's kind of a bottom up thing You probably need to think about how does free get us to spread inside an org or in between orgs or whatever it is, depending on what your product is. For example, Calendly wouldn't be as big as it is if it wasn't freemium, just as one simple example. Same with Dropbox, but they had juice with the referral program. While Calendly just, you know, classic what we call product-led growth now where the usage of the product causes other people to want to use it too. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I wanted to to pull on one more thread for Kissmetrics, um, which I know you've written extensively about it. You have your your article about your billion dollar mistake, and even alluded to sort of some of the pricing stuff, which I think you attribute to um, one of the things that you regret or you'd go back and do differently, et cetera. Right? Hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, one of the things I remember a few years ago was that it was like you couldn't couldn't Google something around marketing without finding a metrics article. Uh, at the same time you know the product was ahead of its time Uh, there's lots of buzz uh, about it on Twitter even back in 2009 2010 I was looking back through some of the screenshots and the wayback machine and stuff Um, looking at it now and this is probably going to be a difficult question but what was working well that you would have continued if you had had the foresight not I'm not necessarily interested I know I know you've talked about what do you uh, what would you have done differently but like if if you saw sort of the, the fork in the road, what would you continue to double down on? Um, if you can go back,
1: um, I wish we understood as a company, what we had, we had people's attention. I don't think we knew what to do with it. We would have done everything from build out a community for marketers to a Q&A site for analytics questions and answers hmm. to who knows what if I knew what I knew what I know now um, which is that attention is priceless but it's a waste if you don't do anything with it so anytime I see a brand getting a lot of attention I just send good vibes to whoever it is to capitalize on that and run with the momentum and hope that they can because hmm. it's incredible when you have it and it's depressing when you don't and you know what it looked like right
0: especially if you like had it and you lost it. the word is depressing
1: right. if you had it and you lost it yeah and the word is depressing because you're just like damn and i never want that to happen again and I, i've definitely let that happen more times than i'm willing to admit and i'll admit anything but that i'm not gonna because like <laughs> we we i've built many products probably 50 plus myself uh if you really start counting so you know th- there are ones that like like for example back in 06 we try to build a podcast advertising network we had some attention early on that was 14 years ago wow
0: (laughs) what it could have been right
1: you know eh, yeah i mean it's just like yeah you know it, it had attention could have done something with it so i think when you see something getting attention uh what do you do with that attention is really the the big question and these days I think there's a, there's no excuse not to be able to do more with it because of just what everyone's talking about. Like the first word that came to mind when you asked me that question was, "Oh, we should have built a marketers community for sure. Hmm. Might have still been running today if we really took that seriously, because we had the traffic to do that."
0: Yeah. What about uh? You know, I know that, or as far as I know, Crazy Egg was uh, self-funded. Um, there was it still still is. is. Yeah. Uh, Kissmetrics took on some venture-backed or was venture backed capital, uh, FYI is also, um, self-funded as far as I know. Um, how does funding influence the marketing strategy or the way that you go to market, uh, AKA, how does that influence the way that you think about marketing the business?
1: Yeah. Funding gives you capital ahead of revenue and with that capital, you can run more experiments. Really sounds pithy, sounds simple, but from a marketing perspective, with more capital, you get to run more experiments. If you think of it any other way, you might be thinking of it the wrong way. Hmm. It's not with the capital you get to hire more people. It's not with the capital you, you know, get to build more product, right? With the capital you get to run more experiments with the idea that you can accelerate uh, the business and hit milestones faster. And the funny thing is, like in most businesses, the milestones are very clear not most, pretty much all businesses. Like if you really think about it, the next milestone is kind of obvious. Like give me five minutes with a founder who's confused about the next milestone and I'll I'll unconfuse them, right? And and then that that kind of thing you can work backwards from. Same with a marketer, right? Like if you're confused about the next step or the next milestone you need to hit, it's actually pretty clear. So like, you know, I I think capital helps you accelerate to go faster and if you can't, and and that's through experimentation. And if you don't know where you're gonna spend your money, don't raise money. Hmm. If you think you ha- you're you onto something and you can raise money, make sure that you really are onto something. You can speak to the customer value uh, that you're getting uh, or the customer value that you're delivering. Because if you can't, then you're really not onto something anyway. Um, that doesn't matter whether it's a you know fast growth, bottom-up type of business or slower growth enterprise business, customer value is what matters. And I think um, I haven't heard investors be able to articulate that really crisply. Uh, But that's what they're looking for. They're looking for all the signals that this is what customers need and that they're very likely to love it if they don't already love it. And anything else before that is, or anything else like is just noise. Like they're trying to get to the answer. Like, do customers love this thing enough that I should invest in it? And a lot of that has to do with how the team builds and stuff like that earlier on when you don't know uh, enough. But at the end of the day, funding is meant to accelerate. And the way you accelerate is by running more experiments experiments, especially from a marketing and growth standpoint.
0: So then what if you don't have uh, a lot of funding, you're, you're self-funded, you're bootstrap quote unquote, you're, uh, basically, um, you're using revenue profits or your own money pouring into the business. How then does that influence the marketing strategy or the way that you, uh, what model you choose to go after?
1: Yeah. When you don't have capital, then you're limited by the fact that there are marketing strategies that require money, more money than time. And the classic one is just any type of paid advertising requires more money and less time from you. While, so so, what I would basically do would be score the marketing tactics based on whether they require time or money. Because when you don't, when you're self-funded, bootstrapped, whatever you want to call it, um, you have time, but you don't have money. And time is really just labor. So you have labor, your own. It might be your own, right. but it's still labor and it's still time. And in that case, it's in a way time is money. So you go spend the time because you don't have the money, which means you're picking channels that are more time intensive and less capital intensive. Mm. That's it. It's that simple. Like I think people try to make it complicated. Right. And like, yeah, that still means you can run 20, 30, 50, 100, $200 a day experiments with ads if you want to, you know, if you think that there's a viable channel there, you could also go spend two, three hours a day doing marketing, then you'd probably get pretty far, whether it's content marketing, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, forums. I mean, there's endless organic opportunity or even just cold calling, right, for that matter, or, you know, reaching out to prospects like in different ways. So, I mean, I, I, I think like these discussions about funding, not funding and all that, get into subjective areas really quickly, instead of objectively speaking about what the opportunity is that you're working on and whether capital will actually help you accelerate it, plus whether the demands that that capital brings you can handle and are worth it for what you're working on. And the demands, what I mean by that, and I think this is an important point, is like if you're self-funded, 20 bucks a day and scaling that to 100 bucks a day is a milestone. If you're funded, thousand bucks a day and scaling that to five and ten thousand dollars a day is what you're really thinking about mm. right or thinking about getting to that is an order of magnitude difference in strategy mindset long-term viewpoint and early on this is one of the reasons too much capital early on kind of screws you up because you kind of think you already have what you need to go make the things successful And if you take that money early on and you haven't really figured out who the customer is, what product you're building in some way to reach them, kind of shooting yourself in the foot because then you're using that capital to go run experiments before the real experiments, right? And those aren't experiments, that's R&D. That's like product work, that's like interviews, that's like customer development, sales discovery. That's not growing and scaling the business. Hmm. Use money to grow and scale the business. That being said, like this is why the venture capitalists invented pre-seeds and even seed rounds. Because these are all meant, they're they are meant to be like this. That doesn't mean everyone looks at them like this, but they're meant to be right. pre-product market fit, pre-traction, money spent on R&D. Series A, which is usually five million or more, tends to be on the side of, oh, you have some re- resemblance or product market fit and you can use our capital to get more customers. So basically, I, my, I would highly recommend folks Wait till they can use capital to get more customers before they decide to raise money. If they need to do a pre-seed or a seed, you're basically going to have to like find people who are early believers in your business. And that's tough without lots of evidence or relationships. Hmm. And evidence is literally customer traction, people loving your product or people, you know, signing LOIs you know, all that kind of good stuff.
0: Yeah. You said something earlier that I want to circle back to, which is that uh, we're all doing marketing to some capacity or degree to another, Um, and I think that sort of relates to our our point about startups and founders having to wear a lot of hats and uh, do whatever it takes, whether it's through time or if if it's through money, but also I think outside of the founders, once you start to get a founding team, scale up, uh, and and you grow beyond sort of what the founder can do beyond themselves, what did you mean... Um, In fact, you have a tweet. It says, even if marketing isn't in our job titles, we all do marketing. What exactly do you mean by that?
1: Marketing tends to be like thought of as something marketers do. Marketing isn't thought of as something everyone does. And I think that's the mindset shift that I know most people that I talk to easily kind of have had in their lives even if they don't recognize it and so one way i would think about it is if you've ever reread an email that you're sending to someone you're kind of doing copy editing which is typically part of writing or marketing Mm -hmm. so i go to the minutia and say if you're trying to influence somebody else which is all of us all the time you're doing marketing and i know that's a really broad way to think about it but that has been really helpful to me in finding the right way to communicate with people, um, that I'm marketing to. And I'm willing to say I'm marketing to them because that is what it is. Mm. And it isn't dirty. It isn't bad. The right marketing tries to solve a problem that people have in the best way that they can and and, and in the best way that is possible and the marketing is almost a vehicle to deliver on value for a product so like i think everyone's doing it and i think if you're communicating with other people you're doing it because you're trying to influence them so marketing is is how we influence people Hmm. to do things that we think are good for them (laughs) i mean at the end of the day if you think that what you're producing and doing and trying to sell somebody is not good for them um or you know isn't aligned with what they need which is a lot of products out there frankly speaking because it hits on certain desires, right, that are automatic in ourselves and things like that, like get-rich-quick schemes and things like that. Yeah, that's marketing too, and people are getting influenced. What's the difference between that and, let's say, uh, marketing a, a product that's good for your health? Like, that that's the debate I would have. It's like, you're both trying to influence, and they're both based on someone's opinion, your opinion of what you're doing or the world's opinion of what you're doing. But at the end of the day, marketing is all about a relationship between one party and another.
2: Hmm.
1: So, and, and and you're just influencing back and forth there. Cause even the customer influences you in marketing. Cause if they don't want it, you just learn something and they're influencing what you say. I mean, this is why I love the idea of go to market and sales and marketing being combined. Cause the tasks and jobs and things that people are doing are actually very complementary, And in fact, sometimes they're the same right? Everyone's trying to influence somebody else. And so to me, marketing is market. The definition of marketing is basically influencing other people. (laughs) And there's no difference to me. And we're always trying to influence other people. So that's my kind of more kind of, uh, philosophical way to think about it, I would say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I wanted to pull on. And how does that influence the way that you go about your job or your day or your relationships, um, I'm especially thinking like, is that something that you would want instilled within your team? Or is that something you try to teach others and, uh, and say, you know, think about this or, or have at it, or is that just something that you, you know, yourself and so it gives you wisdom and how to uh, relate to other people and communicate with them.
1: Uh, we always try to think about our audience first. And when we think about the audience for something, instantly everyone rallies around that and we stop debating like who we're solving for. And so I think the biggest influence is that if we think about all of ourselves as marketing or marketers, then we should be thinking about who we're trying to market to in the audience. And that means that just taking it down that line, that would mean that we would just spend a lot more time being thoughtful about how we communicate. That's really what it boils down to, hmm. and thoughtful generally means you're sort of making sure that you're the owner. The ownership is on you uh, related to the audience and your ability to deliver value to the audience. So thinking about your audience in whatever communications you're doing is, I think, the key. So this can go from like everything from a one-on-one that managers have to a conversation an engineer is having with a product person about a customer, right? Like in like. The engineers are trying to market their point of view if you really want to take it there because they're trying to influence the product manager to do things a certain way product managers doing the same thing trying to influence the engineer <laughs> and the commonality is the customer but like at the end of the day the audience is each other the audience isn't the customer but you're solving for the customer yeah and so you know that that's that dance is marketing
0: <laughs> yeah at the end of the day uh, everything is marketing which is sort of the thought behind the podcast but that, that's why i was curious to hear sort of your thoughts and um that's... and your different uh, taste on that. that.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the the short of it is that perspective has helped me really refine what I say, how I say, and how I think about who I'm saying it to.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's good. I, I'm curious, uh, I want to switch gears a little bit, but how has your thinking about MVPs changed over time? Again, this goes back to sort of the, some of the ancient startup wisdom, if you will, of um, a minimal viable product and this is how you build a startup is you have something initially and then you test and iterate your way into a fully fledged product once you feel like you understand the customer but um, how is your thinking around MVPs and what an MVP is evolved
1: I don't think it's evolved I, I think the core definition for me is still the same and and the core definition it to me is like something that you're showing or having a customer use in order to learn hmm. that's an MVP the nuance is what are you trying to learn how much do you build? Well, none of that matters. That's, that's the debate everyone gets into. Is this an MVP or not? What is an MVP? Well, an MVP is just a project, an initiative designed for you to learn something as fast as you can. And usually the minimal part and the fast part go together. (laughs) So you could call it a fast viable product Mm. instead of a minimal viable product and still have the same definition in my mind, right? That speed is the key. And your ability to get that learning as fast as possible and the sort of mvp from a product standpoint is basically just the smallest thing you can build the smallest thing you can even do um, in order to learn Mm. and oftentimes when you just put that lens on things you cut out a lot of work and then you focus the work on learning you focus the work on getting it in front of people so that you can get their feedback or get their opinion and, and then figure out what to do next and you kind of build on that so I, I have never believed MVPs are designed to scale. They're only designed to learn. I think the fallacy is that you can put out an MVP and then start building on top of it. Mm. That's a fallacy. Typically, you put out an MVP and you have to rebuild it at some point. And that's the mindset you should go into. And if you're lucky, you get to rebuild it because that means it worked. Mm. If you're unlucky, you just go back to you know, you go back to the drawing board and try again. That's it. Like everything else is kind of like noise to me on what MVP really is.
0: Yeah, it's semantics, it's details, it's uh, sort of you, arguing about you the wrong things. You won't see me use
1: that word. You won't see me use that word unless someone else uses yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Because just like many other things, I don't know what it means anymore to, to the other person. I only know what it means to mm.
0: me. Right, it's just a, a, a placeholder or a proxy that, um, comes with a bunch of those different assumptions from whoever is talking about it and each person's definition. That's right. So
1: I, if someone if someone says it and I don't know their definition of it, I'd be like, well, what, what, what do you mean? Right. Let's get on the same page because then I'll use the word in your context, not mine, and that's fine. Hmm. We, we don't use it internally anymore. It's very confusing, even in our own company.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And speaking of learning and iterating and, uh, and testing... I know that you're testing and experimenting with some new strategies or approaches to Twitter, um, but I'm also just curious like you know in the past few years you, you've amassed over uh, two hundred thousand followers on Twitter. Uh, you've been an active Twitter user from the beginning, like how does Heaton Shah use Twitter, and how is he experimenting with Twitter today? Um,
1: for me, it went from a fun place where I used to share links, and that's how I grew the account because. Back in the day, sharing links was a thing and it was curation. And I haven't been able to find a way to get back to that. But the experiments I'm running now that I declared a couple days ago on Twitter is trying to start by getting back to curation and being able to share links. And so if I share links all day like I used to, it doesn't create value for other people. So what I did is I, I created a what I call a never-ending some people have different names for this I guess but that I learned after but it's a never-ending tweet thread and it's a tweet thread targeted at like you know, Targeted for specifically designed for early stage startups self-funded or funded doesn't matter uh, and I'm just gonna put everything with my commentary that I've that is timeless content for startups, you know early stage in, in particular. And it could, it's not targeted at founders only, it's targeted at the companies. So you could say sub hundred people, sub 50 people type companies. And that's the first thing, the first experiment. And my plan is to add to it on a daily basis. And Hmm. uh, my guess is it'll it'll get to a thousand plus links. Uh, I would say in no time, but I'm not adding to it every minute of every day, but I do plan on adding (laughs) daily. And I want to see what happens. And, and you know, so far it has like 1,600 likes, three or 400 retweets or something like that. And I only have like seven or eight items in there. And But they're items that I believe is are some of the best, the very best is what I called it, the very best content for that stage. And, you know, so if you think about it, I'm going back to my roots of what I used to do, which is share content on Twitter as links. And I've been trying to get back to that because it's fun and I like doing it and i'm like an encyclopedia of this stuff and every time someone emails me for advice or asks me for advice i can usually send them a link that's way better than anything i can say in two minutes to them hmm. um so this is just bringing that to twitter uh and i think so so to me like it, it became a more serious place like after kind of the link sharing days were over uh where people were using it as the new microphone and podium. And I've always said that about Twitter. It's like a microphone with a podium and that audience has just gotten bigger. Now there's like 300 million active users a month or something like that on there. I don't know why there's not a billion, but that's a different story. That's their problem, mine. (laughs) Uh, Although it kind of is if I'm investing in the platform, but that's a different story again. Um, So at the end of the day, I, I needed to find a way to get looser about what I tweet and not feel such a high pressure on the quality of it or the style. I did a bunch of Twitter threads a while ago. I like them. Uh, Experiment with that a while ago, and it, it, it's it's useful. Uh, but I, I generally like consuming other people consuming threads more than creating them. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually would rather create an email or create a blog post just because I'm used to that. Um, but so I'm more of a single tweet sort of person. So this is my form of having a Twitter thread that I can just keep adding to, and I have a place. So right now for me, it's about places and and being Mm -hmm. able to mark those places so i might do more of these threads if i find other topics and audiences that i think make sense for my account and for the people that i think uh you know are looking for curation um so yeah and it's just i've just been great at curation that's what people tell me and so i think i should do more of that so that's that's really the lowest hanging fruit easiest experiment for me to do so that's where i started um I have a lot more ideas, uh, but I don't have, it's not a full-time job or anything. It's just something where, right. like you said, I have a bunch of followers and I should probably do something with that.
0: <laughs> While you have the attention, right? Do something with it. Um,
1: yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Starting to wrap up here. Um, I want to do, I'm, I'm sort of experimenting, experimenting myself with a sort of segment of the show, walking through someone's swipe file, quote unquote. Um, so I asked you to prepare a couple of examples, but I, and I believe if nothing's changed, you have three of click uh, dot, dot, go and run research. Could you explain, um, why you curated these three and why you picked them? They were top of mind for you and why they're in your swipe file in the first place.
1: So I have a lot of old stuff that I really like across many different repositories. And so for me, I told you my swipe file is massive because it's not in one place and there's like five different places I have it. Some of it is like, I get a good email, I'll save it and and literally label it a very specific thing, sales, marketing, positioning, whatever whatever it is that I find interesting about it, sometimes multiple labels. So I I can find old stuff pretty fast. Um, In the case of the three I mentioned, let's start with ClickUp. Um, At FYI, we connect to a whole bunch of different document apps that you use, productivity apps even, including things like GitHub as well, and we help you find stuff. Uh, That's the short of it. And in that process, we've done a ton of research and a ton of homework, as I called it earlier, about the market, the customers, the value props, all the things, all the other tools. We've done net promoter score surveys on those tools, all kinds of interesting stuff. And then I ran into ClickUp. And then after that, they raised 35 million bucks as a series A, which is a ridiculous series A, because I just said five million is a series A. So that's a seven X larger series A than (laughs) what, what the floor is which is huge and, you know, kudos to them. They have billboards that say they're going to save you a day a week guaranteed.
2: Hmm.
1: And, and, and there's a strategy there. My, I'll describe the strategy real quick. I call it the basically throw the steering wheel out the window, put a brick on the gas strategy. So now imagine like you have a market <laughs> and there's like competitors head to head, lots of them. Right and let's say you have like just just metaphorically there's two and one of them is clickup and the other one is let's say everyone else they're not heading towards clickup and they're all crowded in kind of a little area not one of them but let's say there's a bunch of cars and clickup's like i'm going to go head to head with all of you and i'm going to run right into your crew with the strongest most muscular car that i can come up that we can come up with to go after that market and the way you do that really well is by taking the steering wheel, throwing it out the window, can't steer, so you gotta aim it right in the first place. Then you get the brick, and you know where the gas is, and you put the brick on the gas, and you say, we're just going that way. Because there's no other way to go, that's the way to go. Dave identified yeah. the that way with the ultimate value prop for a productivity tool or a collaboration tool, whatever you wanna call it, which is, we're gonna save you time. In fact, we're gonna save you a whole day a week. Screw it, hmm. that's what we're gonna say. And they did the studies to prove it. They can back it up and the billboards say it, their website says it. And on top of that, the way they do it is by saying, we're going to build every tool you need for collaboration and productivity, basically. And I'm I'm definitely, they don't say it like that, but that's how I feel when I look at it, but they say it as close to that. It's like almost like the one app to rule them all for these needs.
0: That's what I get to.
1: Yeah. And, oh man, when I see one of those. I just get excited. I'll give you another example. I'm actually wearing their sweatshirt. It's Drift. I'm an advisor. I've known the team for a very long time. I had to compete with that team at Kissmetrics, and that wasn't fun. So I kind of vowed to myself, I want to get closer to these people. (laughs) Uh, There's other folks I've competed with that I don't want to get closer to. I actually want to run away from them, but that's a different story. So these folks I want to get closer to because I'm inspired. And so somehow I convinced them to help me help them. And oh man, they had one of those steering wheel moments too when they lifted the limit uh, to unlimited in their market. And what I mean by that is everyone in the market of like chat and customer communications charges per user, per subscriber, etc. they decided not to. And I had nothing to do with this, by the way. They're, they're a company that I help in very specific areas, usually giving David Cancel, the CEO, a very hard time. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, they, they did it and it was the same strategy. It's like, there's this whole crowd and everyone's got this value problem. We're like, ah, oh, screw it. We're just gonna do the thing that every customer is gonna love <laughs> and all of you are gonna hate. And that's essentially what ClickUp's done. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what Drift did, two very different markets, same strategy. I can't be anything but impressed when I see that. So that's a big one. Uh, Cause when it, if it's good for the customer, everyone else is gonna be screwed in the market. And those strategies are, are I just look for them because they're just so much fun to watch from the outside because mm. they really disrupt a market or have the potential to. Um, the other one I mentioned was DuckDuckGo. I have never been one to have a clear Goliath in my businesses, even though I probably should have. A kiss metric that should have been Google Analytics, but we were never explicit about it. DuckDuckGo has been extremely explicit about them being the privacy focused search company. And nobody else can take that seat from them. And they're the number one privacy-focused search company. And they have single-digit market share in the search space, which is not insignificant in that space. Holy crap. So if you just watch their campaigns and the way that they've approached positioning, even their website, dude, like super impressed. Like super impressed in a market that competing with Google is impossible. Everyone says it. It's just true. There's no like if-ands or whats, whats or buts or anything because they're even doing a great job on mobile now. Hmm. But you know, <laughs> there's nowhere to go but up for DuckDuckGo with their value prop. So you know, I'm thoroughly impressed uh, on multiple levels. And then finally, Rome Research with the Rome Cult. Just type the hashtag in Google, or or sorry, not Google Twitter, uh, Rome Cult, and and you kind of get the idea that like. Something about this product has caused people to have, caused people to feel like they wanna be a part of it. They wanna be a part of it. And then this company has just double, triple down on that. Like I'm part of their believers program. I use the product lightly, I'm not a heavy user of it, but I wanted to be in on it. I wanna see how this company is doing marketing. I wanna see, and it's not, you know, it is marketing, but it's kinda like implicit. They're not explicitly marketing the product. They're just going with the wind. Going catching the tailwind and just pushing it, right, in whatever ways they want. They have like believer calls with all those people that paid 500 bucks for a lifetime subscription uh, where they share all the future of the product. I mean, they are doing a brilliant job of like creating this community and even willing to give it a name like a cult. And I'm sure that came organically. I don't think the founders called it that, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know, though. And I mean, it's it's a very timely example of, natural community being built around a product. So again, another one for the swipe file where I'm like, whew, got to watch this one. Super interesting. Lots of lessons there. Uh, really impressive. Yeah.
0: Connor, if you're listening, I'm going to get you on the podcast at one point, but, uh, I hope you I've, do. I've always, wanted, I've always wanted to ask him about that because he's mentioned before how, uh, they do, you know, zero marketing quote unquote, but I actually think they've done a fantastic job marketing because they've built an amazingly, sort of what I call like an evangelistic user base where people just can't shut up about it and they just loop you in and they create this whole brand around it and movement and it becomes a very philosophical, um, uh, driving force, you know, where you kind of have this, this hive mind in a positive way, if that makes sense.
1: I'm a huge fan of Connor, but that is some bullshit saying that you're doing zero (laughs) marketing and I, I wish founders would just cut the crap out. Right. Like it's just crap. It, nobody believes it. Don't say it. You're wrong. You're doing marketing. Yeah. You're just doing marketing. It's actually some of the best marketing out there today. So you know what? Just cut the crap. That's marketing. <laughs> like, right. Like and and like and I have heard this too many times over the years. We're not doing marketing. We're like, well, dude, but like you are. Like I want to sit them down and say, hey, this is marketing, and it's okay. It's going to be okay. Right. You're a marketer. It's okay. It's okay, Connor. It's okay. Yeah. But that's I I've sat founders down and said you're doing marketing. It's okay. And you don't need to call it that, but don't call it zero marketing. Cause that's completely like, it's completely transparent that it's not that. And if you don't think of it as marketing, that's lovely for you, but it is marketing. Mm-hmm. And it's again, some of the best marketing I've seen in a long time. And the reason is the best marketing just goes along for the ride with the customer. Yeah. When you can do that, it is the best marketing, but it's marketing. Anyway, that's my mini rant for yeah. you. When you talk. Yeah. About it. it doesn't
0: feel like marketing. It doesn't look like <laughs> marketing, but it's marketing at the end of the day. Yeah. But what is marketing? Right.
1: What feels like marketing? Let's step back for a second. What feels like marketing? What does it feel like marketing? Well, it just doesn't resonate with you. So you can't say it's not marketing because like it might resonate with someone else when it doesn't resonate with you. Like that Rome cult, it's marketing, but it doesn't resonate with everyone. So they shouldn't join the cult.
0: That's okay. Right, yeah.
1: (laughs) But again, it's still marketing. You got a hashtag related to your product. Hashtags are marketing, my friend. Like, anyway. I can go off on that because I think it's just complete utter crap <laughs> when founders say that What? Well, and it's, it's, it just points out how naive they are about marketing, hmm. frankly, or how jaded they are about it, which is even worse. It, Will they ever run paid ads is the big question.
0: Hmm. I, I am, hey. I am curious to to pull on that thread if you have another minute here, just because um, sure. marketing does have a negative connotation because it's sort of, um, I forget the phenomenon, but it's, it's one of those things where if someone does it wrong or badly, then it gives the whole thing a bad name. Right. And so there's lots of same with sales, same with sales. Exactly.
1: Same with sales. Sales and marketing have the same exact thing. Right. Would you do, if someone builds a bad product, do we say that's not product? No, it's just bad marketing. I'm okay with that. You call it bad marketing. Say you do great marketing. Say you don't do bad marketing. Cool fine right but what you're really trying to say is we don't do bad marketing (laughs) Hmm. that's what you're really trying to say you saw you do zero you don't do bad marketing but we haven't defined good and bad marketing because again bad marketing to you is good marketing to somebody else
2: Hmm.
1: same with sales right like if it doesn't work on you the message that some salesperson sends and you think it's bad and it worked on someone else what are they gonna say about it they're like it was fine I wanted that message it's really interesting when you think about it that way which is like it's the eye of the beholder it's like wh- whoever's receiving the message gets to judge it and yeah there are a lot of messages that people receive that they shouldn't be receiving but that's just bad marketing hmm. it's still marketing and good marketing still marketing too in fact great marketing like there's a lot of sayings about that you don't feel like you're being marketed to blah 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 no it just resonates with you it's still marketing hmm. someone's still doing the job of marketing even rome there's still, someone's still doing all the things a marketer would do. They just don't call it marketing. They're fueling that fire big time. Yeah. Are those believer calls marketing?
0: I would say I so. Know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would say they are. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, so that's not zero marketing. Yeah. There, there's education yeah. around backlinks. There's education around sort of why yeah. there's the graph yeah. approach to the knowledge and then and the way they interact with the text on the page. Uh, there's a Goliath a bit as well, or, or, sort of an enemy or a frenemy with Tiago Forte, which has been amazingly insightful and entertaining at the same time. Um, but yeah, they don't, they don't do bad marketing. I would say that they've, they've avoided most bad marketing. Um, maybe they haven't hit on so far. all the good marketing, but they've done a lot of good marketing.
1: Yeah, no doubt.
0: Awesome. Well, he to close us out. Uh, I'll ask you one more question, which is what I call my, my Guy Raz question. And it's a little bit more philosophical. So you might love it or you might hate it. But for all the things that you've shared and the audience that you've grown, um, how much would you attribute to luck? And how much would you attribute to your own will and hard work?
1: I mean, there's, there's a lot of like classic answers. You know, one of them is I just show up. I don't know if it's work that I do, I just show up. And and so I think it's not about luck. It's not even about hard work or showing up. Uh, it's more serendipity. And and I would say that if you're trying to get luckier or you're trying to work harder, that's, that's fine. What you're really trying to do though is like get in on opportunities that are good for you and double down on ones that you find. And Hmm. I think that's actually one of the one of the one of the reasons I use the word serendipity is I think you can create a lot of that with Twitter, which can kind of like get you to be even luckier. I think you can do the same on LinkedIn, too. I think Facebook's a little bit harder now, but you can put a message out there or you can put what you're working on out there and it can build momentum and you can feel really lucky. But at the end of the day, you put something out there and you did the first step and then all the serendipity sort of happened. And if you keep just putting stuff out there, that serendipity will happen, no matter who you are or what you're doing. And so, I would I would attribute the majority of whatever's happened in my life to what I would label as serendipity.
0: Hmm, that's good. Well, Heaton, right place, for... right
1: time, unknowingly. It's basically hmm. right place, right time, unknowingly.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then making the most out of it, doing your best with it. That's right. Yeah, while you have the attention, right. make the most of it. Going back to uh, the earlier theme. Heaton, thanks a lot for coming on. Appreciate you taking the time and uh, you're a great
1: guy. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks again to Heaton for coming on the show. If you can, pop on Twitter and thank him for sharing everything in this episode and let him know what you thought. A couple of big takeaways for me. It's interesting to me that Heaton has run very different marketing sales models for each of his businesses and each one has worked to a certain degree. There's some people who just follow the same playbook for everything they do, and sometimes it works, other times it doesn't. But Heaton molds the marketing and sales to the customer, not to his own preferences or biases. And through our conversation, I realized that there's no such thing as doing no marketing. If anything, it's more like doing accidental marketing. But marketing is always happening. It's just a matter of how intentional we are about it and how much we do. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at SwipeFiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.